Blitz Editions. Yay! Howdy folks, so welcome back to the podcast. Today is a little bit of a different one. It's what we call our sort of Blitz Editions, which are just going to be small little bite-sized pieces, things to think about. Uh, and to take away, but probably less to do with giving you answers and more to giving you things to think and talk to your colleagues about wherever you work. So today is the first of probably a four-part series of common mistakes that we've come across uh, in the workplace or as physios. And, um, and this is not an extensive list, it's a growing list. We're more than happy for you to send in some stuff on Instagram as to things that you think we could talk about. But we're gonna do three common mistakes at the moment, and I'll introduce, obviously, esteemed co-host. Wow. <laughs> Dr. Joshua Carter. So esteemed, so esteemed. Yeah, so <clears throat> um, I'll probably got my, my first example comes from remembering back to when I was in my first year out, distinctly remember having a shoulder patient that wasn't getting better. Uh, and I'll probably, all up, I think I probably saw him about four times, and then he probably went to someone else who got him better, which, I really can't blame him for because I wasn't having much progress. But reflecting, as we love to do, not, but it's a good thing, is basically I didn't really change what I was doing session to session with this patient from memory. So I, I don't recall the treatment exactly I was doing, but I do remember that he came in after the first visit and said not much had changed and we had a look at all his ranges of motion and testing and not much had changed. and. I'm pretty sure I did the exact same thing that I did in the very first appointment for treatment and that process basically continued. So it is that, uh, it is that, what's that quote? What's the definition of idiocy? You know, doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So uh, that's definitely something I hope I don't do now, but reflecting back to when I first started is, is a very clear memory of mine. It's, I didn't change anything, but I expected something to change. Yeah, I think, look, that's pretty common. I think you find, um, <clears throat> certainly in student education, you find the person, unfortunately, and maybe in new grads as well, you have a default treatment technique. You probably get taught, a, in terms of outpatients, a lot of stuff to do with the assessment, uh, a lot of stuff to do with you know, objective orthopedic tests and clinical reasoning, which is really important, but your, tr- your treatment options sometimes become limited. You know, if, if we take education out of it. So we're talking just hands on what we're doing in that sort of 20, 30 minute appointment. And I agree, you see it all the time. I see it with students, I see it with new grads that come out, so I'm not really getting anywhere. I say, what are you doing? Okay, I did that the first few sessions. Well, what we need to try something new, don't we? But then they're like, well, I just kept doing that. That's what I, I know that treatment in research somewhere has proven to help that. So I definitely think that, I think, um, that reflective process in this one's the big one. I think, you know, did I get the diagnosis right? Am I actually doing the right thing? Is this different pathology to what I, you know, I guess think it is or thought it was? But 100% changing that treatment approach, you know, I see it a lot. I've been guilty of it a lot, you know, where you're in the mindset that things need to be loosened up when the reality is they need to be strengthened up or things need to be mobilized, things need to be stabilized. Those sorts of things, trying to change the way that you look at it. And, and, but not just that, even if the, the grand plan is still the same, but what you would do to try and achieve that um, is different. So I, I definitely think that that only comes with that reflective process. And sometimes some workplaces, some 
people are better at that reflective process. You know, if you've got somebody, you're doing 20 minute appointments back to back to back, it's very difficult and I certainly wouldn't recommend trying to do time outside of that patient's allocated time for that patient. So if you're seeing 20 people a day at 20 minutes, it's hard to be reflective on those 20 people. So sometimes it does mean that you do need to take a step back and slow down a little bit. You might need a little bit extra time. Look, there's plenty of practices out there, probably not the, uh, the smaller sort of niche market practice like ours, but that have like a, a better mentor system where you get to a certain amount of sessions and if you haven't improved, you can sit down and, and bring somebody else into that next appointment. That's, I think, in paper and in theory, a really good system, and I'd, I'd love to be able to say that we should do more of that. It, it's cost effectiveness isn't always there, and sometimes just having the man and or, or the women on the ground in the practice just makes that difficult. So, But I think that's a perfect world, having someone to talk to and to debrief over, rather than just sitting and stewing or just thinking, you know what, this person's got five care plans, I'm just gonna plow through the five and where they are at the end, where's where they are, or work cover, or you know, DBA. Um, because like you said, perhaps with your person, if they're private paying and they're not seeing results, like all of us, we'd go somewhere else. You yep. know? And that's that's the thing. And that probably leads into a little bit, and, and probably um, is the opposite of what I might say in a, in a few of our common mistakes later on, but, um, one of the big things that worries me a little bit about physio is sometimes, and it might be an underlying theme, is that if we have a poor experience with a GP, we'll generally put that down to the individual GP and go off to a different doctor. Unfortunately, what I see more and more with physios is if you have a poor physio experience, you don't put it down to the individual physio, you write the whole profession off. And you know we will see it, we've spoken about it, you come across it countless times, that person that says, oh, I tried physio, it didn't work. Well, you tried one clinician. You, you haven't tried the entire profession. So um, I think that's the other thing to be conscious of as, as a physio is that, you know, you do stand and represent the profession. And if you're not making a change with what you're doing, bring in somebody else who has a different set of skills and, and, and opinion. And patient will appreciate it. You know, you, you will learn more out of it. And I think it's a win-win for everyone. Definitely. And Nick, the, the next point we're probably making is probably one you're pretty passionate about at the moment. And I think um, there's a little bit of pushback in the physio world about the loudest voice in the physio room at the moment. And that is the, the confusion or the mistake of confusing uh, research-informed practice and thinking that that's genuinely evidence-based practice. There's a difference and you touch on it pretty well. Yeah, so that I means this is our point number two. Point number two. So I think that's a really, really common mistake um, when people interchange the terminology and don't fully understand what they're saying. And yet, absolutely, people will say, oh, I only do evidence-based practice. And what they're really trying to push upon you is that they're only doing practice that's been researched. And there's nothing wrong with saying I only do research-based practice. All right, and, and limiting your service to just research-based practice. But don't call it evidence-based practice because that very much is those three equal parts to that Sackett's evidence-based triangle, you know, where you have clinical expertise, definitely research, but also patient expectations and goals. And um, I guess it happens a lot with new grads or newer grads who come out, so I'm not gonna do that. You know, they see an older physio that does a particular type of treatment. They very quick to dismiss it uh, largely because they don't understand it, <clears throat> but because they'll say, oh, that's not evidence-based. 
But the reality is that person who's been a physio for 30, 40 years, their clinical experience is better than yours. And then the patient is obviously buying into what we're doing. And so, you know, it's as good, if not better than just the research alone. I think our research is very limited in physio. You know, every paper ends with more research is needed. Mm -hmm. But I think 30 years or, you know, however many years of clinical experience is very powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think as a profession, there's people who are loud voices who are simply saying, well, if we're not doing just the research-based treatment, we're not real physios. I think you're going to have a limited physio career. The irony of it is, isn't it? We've published some research and it took nearly two years from when we did the actual research to get it published. And that's probably pretty quick compared to a lot of bigger, probably more impressive studies. Not that our study wasn't impressive. Of course it was, but yeah, yeah, bigger research probably takes five years to go from testing to... I mean, myself and another colleague here at work, we did that, the, the screening tests for kayaking versus ski paddling it took 10 years to get that published mm. what was fresh and new you know exactly what you're leading to you know 10 when we started the study wasn't fresh and new 10 years later and what we knew 10 years earlier you know to what we knew 10 years beyond was so much different so i, I think you're right i think that's the hardest part is that um it takes a long time for research to come through we're seeing it with the coronavirus stuff you know people say oh we have the we have the uh, the vaccination, you know, we just needed to go through clinical trials and it might, you know, I mean, this is a world pandemic that we're trying to expedite that, but, um, you know, in physio world, expedite might be two, three, four, five years. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. I think research is always that little bit behind what, what people feel is working. Um, but I also think, irrespective of what the research says, if your clinical expertise tells you that it's working and the patient tells you that that's worked previously, um, but it's a pretty powerful thing. I think also just my probably largest bugbear is just the terminology of people saying, no, I only do evidence-based practice, when really they're saying they only do research-based practice. And I think that confusion between those terms um, is, is hurting us as physios because physios are saying there's not enough evidence-based treatment. And really what they're saying is there's not enough research-based treatment. And I think that hurts us because we use that terminology around people that potentially are better suited and understand the terminology, whereas we just use it as a throwaway line. So I think that's a really big thing for me at the moment, massive thing for me at the moment. I'm lucky to have a job at a university and also here in the clinic, so I see it from those new grads and long-term grads, and I, and I see all other professions. You know, People will tell you what you learn today will be wrong tomorrow, um, or something that people said 10 years ago was wrong now comes back into favour and says, well, actually, it is right because we've been able to show this. And I think that's a big thing for us. I think if we know that clinically we get results, we might in turn in the future find out that, oh, that's why. It wasn't the reasoning what we thought, but now that we've researched it better or had a better understanding, we've been able to sort of show that that works that way. So I think that would be a really big common mistake to simply throw everything out because you can't find a research paper. Mm. And it's a quite a general statement, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of people that'll hammer me for saying it, but I'm going to say it. But if you look at the research, there's not that much stuff that physio has been proven to be good for. Yeah. Really, if you if you have a good look at it, it's really a really cruel irony that people are so dog-headed, pragmatic about oh, evidence-based, evidence, physio is evidence-based. Physio doesn't have 
a lot of evidence base. Research based. Research based, correct. <laughs> See, I'm even doing it now. But exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's more research just been published by a number of big physios and a knee surgeon saying that post op knee physio is basically pointless. Just get back to doing life. And that's all the rehab you need. Mm. Yeah. And so, uh, and my, my argument to a lot of those things is we're the best person equipped to get that person back to life. So yes, we don't need, you know, and I've, I've always been dead against protocols and this is what should happen post ACL or this is what, should, you know, post meniscus, because I think we didn't apply that process before they had it. You know, the, what they were living their life. We need to now instruct them. And, you know, it's so incredibly powerful, our knowledge of, you know, loading and patterning and progressive loading and, and all those things which we, we don't give enough time to. We think, no, no, we need a protocol or we need, you know, post-ACL, we need to do this on day one and day three and this is what it looks like and we need to massage these days and use ice these days and heat these days. And so, no, we just, we need to understand the person and we need to understand what they can afford, what time they can afford, more importantly, what things they have at home and be that, I mean, people would hate me saying this, but that holistic carer that looks at the situation and takes and uses what's available and, and those sorts of things. I think physios would hate to think of themselves as a case manager, but I think in some aspects of you know, elite sport, that's what it is. It's trying to find a way to get this rehab into them um, around what they're doing, or, you know, around their beliefs, around their time, around all those sorts of things. So um, yeah, I 100% think you're right. I think you know, if we just wait for the research we're going to be limited. We'll be out of a job. We will be out of a job. And then this probably flows in nicely to the Number final, three. the final, third and final point is that <clears throat> thinking your your way as a physio, what you, what you do, what you like to do as a physio is the only way. Or thinking there's an approach that's the best approach, and it, it probably ties in pretty nicely to point two. Absolutely, I reckon this is one of the things that we as physios do really badly. And why doctors sometimes laugh when I talk to them about physios. He said, all doctors will support another doctor's opinion and point of view. They mightn't agree with it, but they will support that doctor. All physios will stab each other in the back. If there's one physio down the road who's doing a particular type of treatment application that's different to yours, you, you will condemn them, dismiss them. Ah, oh, it's not real physio. You know, it might come under the scope of physio. They might have learned it. They might be new grad, 20 year grad, it's what they believe physio is. And I think we're really quick to dismiss that. Now I'm not talking about stuff that's out of our scope. I'm talking about stuff that's in our scope, that's taught in universities. Um, you know, different universities teach different things. You know, you have people doing shortwave diathermy still in some aspects, you know, others they haven't taught that for 25 years. I don't years. even know what that is. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, but those sorts of things uh, I think can easily certain people who get so dogmatic about their way is the only way become dismissive of the physio that does it a different way. Now, if the physio that does it a different way doesn't get any results, they'll go out of business. But I think in a lot of instances, it's a, it's a jealousy and an annoyance that you go, well, I'm actually doing physio. They've got physio on the door, but that's where it ends. Our scope is so large. That's what confuses the public for a start. But it's also that thing that I mentioned before is that... Um, you know, you only get one crack at it. People quickly say, oh, I tried physio and it didn't work. I guess you as a physio need to explain to people that there's such a, a varied range of things that can, a physio can do. Certain physios do it one way. It's not the only way. Um, 
And if you're open and honest with the patient and say, hey, look, this is what I do, I'm not gonna try and be that person down the road. You came in, you wanted cupping. Um, I don't do cupping and, that's, and, and I'm more than happy to refer you to that person because that's what they do, they specialize in that. Um, but it's not to say that that's not part of some form of manual therapy. Um, so I think being open-minded to that, we, I see it all the time, people that, that are so closed-minded in their thinking that I kind of feel like they will be embarrassed in the future. And they generally those people that do, you know, people that 20 years ago were, were saying to me, if you didn't understand that everything was mechanical and you need to know your anatomy and what gets impinged and what gets irritated, you look at that now, and, and people would be laughing at this now going, particularly new grads going, nothing's impingement, nothing's mechanical, you know, there's a, there's a chemical component to irritation. But when I went through in the 90s, it, it was mechanical. You needed to know your anatomy, your origins, insertions, back to front so that you could work out that biomechanics, that something would be, you know, a taut band because of the rotational forces, all those sorts of things. Now we know that that's not necessarily the case now. Um, for everything, I think we've thrown the baby out of the bathwater. I think there are some things that are very mechanical, but we've now pendulum swung the other way and we're now looking at things as being much more neuromodulated with pain and you know at a chemical release level at a cellular level that becomes an irritant so we look at everything that way we probably dismiss the other component but i think there's probably a component of everything so i think being open-minded but i think i'm not suggesting that you have to believe everyone else's theory but you've got to recognize that they're getting results potentially they're getting the same results that you are just doing a different way so you know, I think being open-minded to that is important. Yeah, well, we've seen some really big examples of it in the physio and sports medicine world. You know, Gabe Merkin, who was the dude that invented rice, came out and said icing stuff is actually not the right thing to do in a lot of cases now. And he wrote the book on rest, ice, compression, elevation. Um, transverse abdominis, you know, you went through UQ back in the 50s or something like that. So close to the 50s? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 50s. And that would have been like, like that go, I mean, going to those lectures would have been something physios nowadays probably look at and go, wow, imagine sitting in a lecture there with those people, the TA big dogs talking about that. And we kind of look at it now and as we come through, it's still taught. It's definitely still a thing, but we kind of all have a little giggle and go, yeah, maybe it's, it's not the only way we can help people with back pain. Absolutely. I think the TA one for me is really relevant because I was obviously there when that all happened. In the 50s. Yeah. 90s, but anyway, yeah. no dramas. Sure. Um, and the people that did those studies, I think, and this is a classic thing, not just for physio, is they found one thing, but the information that they found was kind of twisted and spun to be something so very different. One, one paper I remember showed that basically people with long-term back pain had a decreased cross-sectional area of multifidus and potentially transverse abdominis than that person without long-term back pain. So but they really didn't extrapolate too much more than that, except that that was a finding. So people took from that, that obviously people with long-term back pain have weak TAs and weak multifidus. Now, we know now that if we you know, just inject you around your knee with salt water, we'll get a delay reaction in our VMO. We know that it's not a weak VMO that's caused your knee pain because we just injected it with salt water into that area to make the knee pain. So now we look at it and go, okay, well that decreased cross-sectional area over a chronic back pain is largely because they've had pain, they've had a delayed reaction and activation in those muscles. You add up that delay over you know, years and years and you get this decreased cross-sectional area. So it's not a weakness caused the pain, it was because the pain caused the weakness and then 
it potentially snowballed over it. And I, look, I might be very wrong on that. There might be another explanation also. But I think the people that did the research who were incredibly smart people. They found one thing and a bunch of physios read it and extrapolated it to be something else. And so the whole world of physio changed. We had, you go into physios that were, that were basically, weren't even getting it right. We're, we're doing things like planks and stuff, which kind of were against really what the research showed. And I think that's another aspect of physio, another probably common mistake all the time is, is you know, misunderstanding the, you know, the results of a, of a research. But absolutely, it's not the be all and end all. I, I, I had a, should I go there? Yeah. I had, uh, in my final year when I was doing outpatients, um, I had a person who'd been at a rave party, all right? They may or may not have been taking drugs at the rave party. Right. They had presented with bilateral calf pain because they had been jumping for 12 hours straight. Mm-hmm. Patient said to me, hey, look, I did do some illicit stuff and I basically jumped for 12 hours and I, I cannot walk properly because my calves are so We tight don't condone sore. that, by the way. Yeah. We don't, not... don't condone illicit stuff. So I went out to the tutor and I said, this is the thing. Subjectively, he, he's basically jumped up and down the spot at a rave party for 12 hours. Calves are sore. It's got, you know, there's no loss of strength or anything like that, but they are really, really sore. The tutor said to me, but I have I checked their TA? And I was, no. <laughs> and, and she said, well, everything comes from the TA. It would be a weak TA that's meant that they've had to stabilize more in their calf when they're jumping. Mm. Interesting. Um, interesting. Um, I would suggest that they were there because their calves were tight from 12 hours of jumping continuously. More so, yeah. Um, and I said, no, I didn't. And I got into a bit of an argument because I was stubborn enough to go, TA's got nothing to do with this. Um, but I basically got really pretty much in trouble because I would refuse to do the TA test. We were doing TA tests on everything. Shin splints, every single thing. Now, I'm not suggesting that you know it, you couldn't have improved TA, but my thing was that that's not what was going to immediately improve this condition. So that was something that happened a lot. You know, There'd be other people at other universities that talk about soft form versus prefab you know, orthotics and that they spent hours and hours. We didn't do any of that at university, but people came in my master's and knew all about that area because it was an area of specialty at their university. So I think, um, I guess things change now. And I think, unfortunately, because you do get some loud voices that say, TA, it was all rubbish. You forget it all when really there's no point forgetting it all because there's some very, very useful stuff there. It's just that you don't apply it to everything. We, we see it when we do our own professional development. You go to a course on taping. And for the next month, everybody gets taped. Yeah. Every single thing gets taped. And then and that pendulum starts to swing back the other way. You start to tape nobody because you're not seeing the results that the person at the course told you. And then hopefully, pendulum settles back down into the medium sort of area and you go, well, I'll tape what I need to tape and you know the other yeah. things that I won't. Um, so yeah, that'd be my sort of take home on that one is I, I don't be closed-minded and narrow to think that just the way your thought processes now are the only way to do things. Be open to change. Open to change. So that brings us to the end of our first bite-sized piece. Hope that you took something out of that. That's three common mistakes we think you all uh, may come across. You may, you may not. Um, but more giving you than giving you answers, we want to sort of spark some thought and discussion in your workplace with your colleagues about things that you can do to hopefully future-proof yourself against those.